Our text this morning is that exact same passage that we've read in its entirety. We won't read the whole thing again just now, but I invite you to keep your Bibles open. We'll be working our way through that passage throughout the sermon. After the proclamation of the gospel, we will sing in response Psalm 92, stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the theme of this morning's sermon, God uses human evil in his saving work, this theme is chosen for this text because of the way that this passage is able to teach the people of God, us, about the power and the wisdom of God, in, especially in the midst of the hardships of life, and this is able to bring us an unspeakable comfort. The passage that we're working through this morning, we know we can see that this is part of a larger story. This is the first part of the Joseph narrative, the story of Joseph and his brothers. And as mentioned, this is the last sort of narrative section in the book of Genesis. And it's remarkable that at the beginning of this story, in the entirety of chapter 37 of Genesis, God is not even mentioned once. But, because we know the story, most of us are very familiar with this story, and in fact, people who um, wouldn't even call themselves Christians, who, who weren't raised in the church, um, are probably somewhat familiar with this story. It's, it's well known, it appears in every, almost every uh, children's Bible storybook. There have even been movies, there was a Disney movie uh, produced about this story. So it's quite well known, but we who really intimately know this story, we know how it ends, and we know what purpose or purposes these events serve, and we can even think ahead to the very end about the testimony that is given at the end about the providence of God, and we'll refer to that in, in a little while. And because we know those things, we're able to come to this passage and we're able to recognize the fingerprints of God in everything that is happening right here. God is at work. God is driving all of these events toward some goal, toward some purpose, and these are good goals of God. And so we can see that in everything that is happening here, he is making use of, of everything that happens. He's making use of the evil that is in the hearts of people. He's directing wicked actions toward some good thing. What a comfort this story is. If we think about everything that has happened so far in this book of the Bible, in Genesis, Genesis has been a record of the failings of human beings, the failings of God's image bearers, the failings of God's co-rulers of the earth. 
At every single turn, with every single generation, people have acted foolishly and and in different ways, humanly speaking, they have jeopardized their life with God. But God's promise, His set of promises that He has given to His people, those promises have always remained and God has always driven His story forward. Fulfilling the very things that he has promised. His faithfulness remains. God is not thwarted by even the worst of our actions. This is something that we would have seen uh, throughout the entire narrative of, of Jacob. He had an incredibly poor, deceptive character. Uh, we could see the way that he relied on, on his own wiles, his own cunning, his lies for his well-being. We could see the way that he failed so often to seek out the will of God. He failed to try to understand uh, God's way for, for the fulfillment of his promises, but in, instead he tried to, he tried to uh, lay hold of the things that God had promised him by his own uh, actions without relying on him. But God drove it forward God taught even Jacob to trust in him, and God secured for him all of the blessings that he had promised him. So now here we are in the next generation. These are the sons of Jacob. And guess what? Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. We have another story of people behaving badly. What's going to come of all this? Well, so if we get into our reading here in in Genesis 37, in the first four verses of the passage, we're sort of given a summary of how Jacob's family is doing. How are they? How are they getting along together? Well, it's pretty dysfunctional, isn't it? Joseph is immediately shown to be at odds with his brothers or his his half-brothers. Joseph was the first son born to... Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, and in the beginning of this chapter, he was tending, uh, at at a certain point, uh, he was tending a flock with some of Jacob's other brothers, and so these are sons born to Bilhah and and Zilpah, and and these women are are sort of like third-class wives in Jacob's family. Remember that um, when Jacob left his homeland, he went and lived with his uncle Laban, and he saw Rachel, that was the first girl that he met there. This is one of Laban's daughters, and he fell in love with her instantly. He said, I want this girl to be my wife. And he worked seven years for his uncle Laban in order to have her as his wife. And Laban pulled a little switcheroo and gave him Leah instead. So then he ended up working 14 years finally to, to, to be able to marry Rachel, um, the, his favorite. But then... Later on, Bilhah and Zilpah, these are the the servant girls of of Rachel and Leah, they were also given to Jacob in some childbearing contest between uh, Rachel and Leah. So they were just sort of pawns in this competition that these sisters were having. And, And along the way, Jacob had these 12 sons through these four wives. What a mess! What an absolute disaster! So here, Joseph is working with these older brothers of his, and he brought a bad 
report to their father about them. And it's not just that he, you know, they do something really bad and, and then he has to tell their father about it. No, it's, it's, it's not just that he tattles, but it probably means that he's exaggerating the report that he gives to them in order to make them look as bad as possible and in order to curry even more favor from his dad. He, he reported badly, uh, the original text says. He, he misrepresented them. And by the way, you know, we're told that, that Jacob loved Joseph. Already, that's one of the first things that we're told. Jacob loved Joseph more than all his brothers. He was the son of his old age, and of course, he was the first son born to his favorite wife. And he was given this very fine robe to wear. That robe was this visible sign of, of the favoritism that Jacob showed. You know, and, and you have to think of this as so, sort of a ridiculous thing that Jacob would do for his favorite son. It's sort of like if, if all of Jacob's sons were, were driving like Ford Pintos, then Jacob buys Joseph a Lamborghini. Oh, here you go, Joseph. You drive this Lamborghini. And every time Joseph pulls up, you know, his brothers are reminded of how much Jacob really loves Joseph. The brothers recognize this so clearly. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. In verses 5 through 11, we have the breaking point in the family. This is the event that God uses in order to drive his plan ahead. He sends Joseph two dreams. And in verse 5, without even telling the content of the dreams, so we read there, now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. It's kind of like, Joseph had a dream, and, and when you hear what this dream is about, you're going to understand why they hated him. And this is part of the very well-known story. It's included in, you know, Bible story books. He first has this dream about working in the field with his brothers. Joseph tells his brothers, guess what, brothers? We were binding sheaves in the field, and guess what happened? guess what happened? My sheaf stood upright, and then all of your sheaves gathered around mine, and they started bowing down to it. Isn't that something? What do you think of that, brothers? How would you react? How would you react if you were one of Joseph's brothers, and he came to you and, and blabbed about this dream to you? Here's the brother that is reminded every single day about how special he is and how special you are not, wearing that ridiculous robe every day, flaunting it in front of everyone. And then he not only has this dream about how great he is, but he goes around to his brothers and he has to tell them all about it. Guess what? Guess what, guys? I had a dream that I was better than you. Isn't that neat? And then, of course, the second dream. Guess what, everybody? I was standing there and the sun and the moon and, huh, this is weird, 11 stars 
11 stars and there are 11 of you brothers. What do you think of that? What a coincidence. They were all bowing down to me. Isn't that neat? And this time Jacob rebukes him too. What do you think you're doing? Why are you telling us this? Do you actually think that this is going to happen, Joseph? And the brother's hatred grows. But we're also told that Jacob is taking a special note of this. This is uh, in verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Dreams are important. Jacob knows this. We can remember how... Uh, how, how God had appeared to Jacob in a dream at Peniel. That's where he was sleeping with, the, with his head on the rock. And he had that dream, that vision of the ladder going from earth to heaven with angels going up and down on it. And, and God revealed himself to him very vividly in that dream and promised him things in that dream. Jacob knows that this is something that God uses. He's open-minded to the fact that maybe this dream could be from God. And, of course, we know, yes, this is from God. These dreams that Jacob has been given, they're, they're, not only, they're not only telling the future, things that God is, is going to do, but these dreams are actually used by God to bring about the content of the dreams. That's actually pretty amazing. God uses the dreams to to really blow things up in the family and to propel the story forward. The fact that Joseph had the dreams puts all that into, into action. At some point, Joseph is going to be of some high status. At this point, the readers don't know what this is going to look like. Joseph doesn't know what, it, what, what that actually will be. His brothers will bow down to him and tremble before him and show him honor, and he will be a ruler over them all, yet even over Jacob's whole household. This, of course, is when Joseph ends up as a ruler over all of Egypt, and his whole family moves there, and Joseph is their, their ruler. God is going to bring that about. Well, how? How is, how is that going to happen? Well, it's through a horrible almost unspeakable act of hatred. It's, it's unthinkable. It's almost unbelievable that this could actually happen. Already this story is being propelled by bad character, foolish and sinful people, but it's about to get even worse. In the second part of this passage, it takes an extremely severe turn. We've been told a couple of times that his brothers hated him, and you know maybe that didn't quite hit home. They weren't just annoyed with him. They actually hated him to the point of wanting him dead. They felt nothing but disgust for him. They had no use for him, and they came to the conclusion, not just a feeling in, in, their, in their guts, but they actually reasoned it out in their minds too. They figured that the world would be better off without Joseph in it, and their lives would be better if Joseph's life was ended. Joseph had been sent by Jacob to go and check on his brothers, 
While they're out with the flocks, Jacob goes and searches for them, and he finally finds them. And they, his robe must have been, you know, unmistakable, even from a distance, because they see him coming, and they recognize him, and before he has the time to actually arrive and, and be with them while they're eating, or no, they're eating later, um, before they actually get to him and arrive, they've been able to speak about this, conspire against him and hatch this plan. Let's, let's murder him. Here's Joseph. These are 11 brothers, and they conclude, today's the day. We're going to be done with Joseph. We're going to end his life. We're going to shed his blood, and we're going to throw his dead body, his corpse, the corpse of our brother, into a pit. Can you imagine this? This is their brother. And they're ready to do it. Of course, Reuben is able to talk some sense into them. He convinces them not to kill Joseph, at least not right now. Let's just throw him into a pit. And we're told that his plan is actually, you know, maybe after they cool down, he'll get Joseph out of the pit and he's going to give him back to Jacob. He's going to rescue his brother and save his life. So they have a meal while they're eating. This trading caravan comes by. Apparently Reuben is not there at that point. So Judah steps in and takes charge and he suggests, look, let's not kill him after all. He is our brother. Let's not shed his blood. Let's just sell him to these people. Then we'll be rid of him. You know, and, and he said too, what, what profit? There's nothing, there's, there's nothing in it for us if we just kill him except that we're rid of him. Let's sell him to them. Then at least we have these, you know, this money that, well, that'll be good for us. So that's what they did. They don't end his life. They don't kill him, but they're done with him. They're, they're rid of him. They want Joseph out of their lives and they make it happen. They strip his robe off they soak it in blood to trick their father so that he would actually believe that Joseph was dead. The grief that they are willing to have Jacob endure because of all this, it's done. Joseph is gone, and they don't have to deal with that spoiled brat anymore. And you know, they don't care. They don't care where Joseph might end up. They sold him as a slave. So they basically put him at the bottom rung of society. Who knows what's going to come of him? Maybe he'll be beaten to an inch of his life every single day. He'll have an awful life, but whatever. You know, they hate him. And they're done with him. We know some of the things that happen to Joseph while he's there. He's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and he ends up in prison while innocent for a long time. We know that he's sitting there alone. His master, Potiphar, has probably forgotten him. His, his brothers certainly aren't thinking about him. Nobody is considering him. Is he forsaken by everyone? How much hatred and evil is there in all of these events? Think about, think about your own sibling, your own brother or your sister. If your parents, think about 
your children treating each other like this and having such a profound and deep hatred for each other that they would be willing to put each other through something like this. It's, it's impossible to imagine that this sort of evil could exist. But somehow this is part of God's plan. God is, is doing something with this, God is using the hatred and the evil in their hearts to bring about something greater. While Joseph is in that pit, or later on while he's in prison, he couldn't possibly see what that's going to be. The brothers certainly aren't looking ahead to this, but if we look ahead, we're, we're allowed to do this. We can, we can you know, sneak ahead a, a few chapters and look at the end of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is now the ruler of all Egypt. He has been shown to have this profound wisdom from God that, that puts him into Pharaoh's good graces and Pharaoh makes him second in command over the entire country. There's only one person that doesn't answer to, Jacob, or to, to Joseph. I don't know if I've been saying Jacob mistakenly, but if I have, I mean Joseph. Uh, Joseph is the ruler over the whole land. The only person that doesn't answer to him is Pharaoh himself. And because of his position and because of the foresight that God has given him, Jacob, or Joseph has been able to rule well and to provide food in the midst of this severe famine, this seven-year famine. And so all of Egypt is provided for, and not only Egypt, but for the whole known world. And here at the end of Genesis chapter 50, we'll read there verses uh, 16 through the end. So they, that's Jacob's, or I'll start at 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, so this is after all of these things, they're, they're living there in, in Egypt with Joseph. They're recalling all of the evil that they've done to him. They say, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. We don't know if he actually gave this or if they're lying about it. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Of course they did. It's horrendous what they did to him. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him. So the, the dream, another um, instance of his dreams coming true. And they said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. There's no sugarcoating it. It certainly was evil, and they have to answer for it. But God meant it for good. He directed it. God meant it for good to bring about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is all in view for God. This is what God is directing these things toward while Joseph's brothers are dealing with him so horrendously. 
We can see the hand of God in his, his providential care, making use of their evil for his purposes. And we have to recognize that his purposes weren't just limited to, to what we see here at the end of Genesis, saving people's lives in the middle of a famine. Okay, that would be incredible enough. That's one outworking of what's going on here. But this this event, this is, all, this is also the root cause of the people of Israel, all the descendants of Jacob, at some point the nation of Israel, this was the root cause of them being in Egypt as slaves. And this would set the stage. This was setting the framework for God's first great act of salvation, of deliverance, rescue from Egypt, and that act of deliverance is actually a blueprint. It's a type. It's a picture of the greatest deliverance that God would work out for us. The deliverance of Egypt out, or of Egypt of, of Israel out of Egypt is supposed to be symbolic of God's deliverance of us from slavery to sin through Jesus Christ. That is actually what's going on here. That is what God has in mind while Joseph's brothers are dealing so treacherously. This is for us so that we can recognize the salvation that we have been given in Jesus Christ. How remarkable that, that, that this story of God making use of evil for salvation, this story contains so many hints, so many types about the way that God would save us through Christ. We're meant to see Joseph in, in certain ways as a little picture of Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it flies off the page. You know, the way that his brothers betray him. They betray their brother for 20 pieces of silver. We can think ahead of of the betrayal of Jesus Christ by Judas, his closest friend, his disciple, the one he had closest to him, betrayed for, well, not 20, but 30 pieces of silver. We think of the way that he was stripped of his robe and humiliated, and Joseph being thrown down in that pit. We're meant to see that as sort of his death. They betrayed him, and they, and they sort of executed him. And when Jacob receives Joseph back, he considers that I have received back my son from the grave. In some ways, Joseph is meant to be an antitype of Christ where, where Joseph had failings, Jesus Christ did not. You think of the lack of wisdom and discretion that Joseph showed with, with blabbing about these dreams and, and, and being prideful around his brothers and in contrast, Jesus kept his mouth shut. He didn't exalt himself. And he only spoke about who he was when he knew that his time was coming and it was propelling him toward the cross. He was willing to die. How incredible that God would weave together this story. That, that God would tell us this story this way. And, and it's not just 
conceiving of a story, like that's beautiful, that he would tell our story of salvation in Christ in this poignant, vivid picture, sort of like a parable. The Joseph story is sort of a parable of salvation in Jesus Christ. But this parable of Christ's work and the salvation that comes through him, this really happened. God actually wove history together and caused things to happen by his power, by his wisdom, by his providence in such a way that, the, that a story of salvation in Christ is told. What a God. God, our God, our Father, does that in order to teach us, his people, about our own salvation. What a comfort that what a comfort that evil doesn't wreck God's plans. Evil doesn't derail the promises of God, the plans that he has. Evil is made to fit perfectly into the blueprint of history that God has already drawn out and decreed to come to pass. Now we have to be clear about something, that the evil that happens in here, this is an evil from God. God is not the author of evil. This is something that we confess in our, in our confessional statements about the providence of God. Even though God directs all things, even the evil thoughts and actions of men, God is not the author of that evil. God has one policy against sin. He's against it. And he has an accounting for it. And every sin must be dealt with with God's justice. So God does not soften his stance just because he's using it for his ends. Even though he is against evil and it's, he commands us not to, he directs all of, all of this, everything in our lives, even the, the worst things that we could ever do, he directs them for the good of those who belong to him. That is a great comfort for us. We know that God has promised life for us, a wonderful future. We sometimes can, can lose our confidence in God's ability to continue to direct our lives. We forget to be comforted that God is sovereign. We forget how perfect His providence is. We might get worried about, about how our sinfulness, our, our shortcomings might have driven God's work in our lives off the rails. Like, oh man, I've gone too far. And we can't imagine how God could possibly use our foolishness, our mistakes, our terrible mistakes that, that have consequences. How could God possibly be shaping me for my good through all of this? Or People mistreat each other all the time. And no doubt many of you sitting here have, have been betrayed or hurt in some way by another person. You know, how could God let such a thing happen to me? You know, was he looking the other way and, and, and this sort of flew under the radar and I got hurt and I wasn't supposed to? No. Every single event whether we consider it to be minor or major, even if it's the most, even if it's the heaviest calamity in our lives, we 
must know, this is foundational, that God is directing it toward your good, your eternal good. This is somehow resulting in your salvation. Romans 8 verse 28, in all things, not just most things, not just the easy things, but especially we should call this to mind in the hardest of things. We know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Most often, we can't see the very good thing that is at the end of all of this. We have to remember that Joseph, while he's sitting in that pit, while he's sitting there in prison, there's no way, unless God gave him a special vision, there is no way that he would say, oh, I can see how this works out. This is going to happen, and then I'm going to be the ruler of all Egypt. Perfect, all right, this is fine. This is fine. No, he couldn't see that. Sometimes God allows us to connect the dots after the fact and be able to see, oh, that's why I went through that thing 10 years ago. Because if I didn't go through that thing, I wouldn't have been shaped in a certain way that, that this other thing happened. And, and, and now I can praise and thank God because I see how perfectly he wove it so that I would be here giving thanks to him for the life that I have now. Sometimes God gives us the ability to see that, but sometimes not. And we have to be okay with that too. We have to trust Trust in God that all of these things are working for our eternal salvation. We can have confidence that, that God is the same today for you this morning as He is back then. His providence is the same. He still has the ability, and as your heavenly Father, He has the willingness the love for you to bring about the highest good, the highest blessing through even the most awful circumstances. Our God is great. His, his ways are so high above our ways. We'll sing that in a moment from Psalm 92. How profound your thought, O God. His thoughts, his plans are so far beyond us. We are, we must know this and take comfort in this, that we are always in very good and loving hands, the hands of our Heavenly Father. Amen.